Hey everyone, this is Dr. Celine Gounder. You may have noticed something different when you saw our show in your feed. We've been producing In Sickness and In Health for the last three years. But as the show evolved, we decided it was time for a new name, one that better fits the kinds of stories we're telling. So from here on out, In Sickness and In Health is going to be known as American Diagnosis. New logos and art are coming soon, too. We may have a new name, but some things won't change. You can still expect interesting personal stories and in-depth interviews with experts on some of the biggest health issues facing America. So please tell a friend about our show today and help us keep building this community. Okay, now here's the show. I do think that we can cut gun violence in half in the next 10 years, but we need a massive voter turnout, not just this year, but every year. The people that we should center who should be speaking on this issue are survivors of gun violence. If we don't center those stories, we'll never have the true grasp on the impacts of gun violence in this country. Welcome to American Diagnosis, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. When you hear the words Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, or Parkland, or the March for Our Lives, David Hogg is probably one of the names that comes to mind. When politicians send their thoughts and prayers with no action, we say no more. And to those politicians supported by the NRA that allow the continued slaughter of our children and our future, I say get your resumes ready. But before David was speaking to crowds of hundreds of thousands as a founding member of a national youth movement to prevent gun violence, he was a new student from California who didn't know anyone at his new school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Because I didn't really have any friends when I went there was, uh, I made my camera my best friend. And I found at my school a real passion for broadcast journalism and wanted to pursue that. So that's what I started doing. I basically just went around the school Uh, interviewing students because I I didn't really have anything else to do. And my camera was my excuse to be everywhere at any time. And I did that for the four years leading up to uh, February 14th. And on February 14th, I found myself in a very tightly packed classroom as the shooting was happening and not knowing whether or not, not knowing whether or not we were basically going to make it out of that classroom to be completely honest with you. In that uncomfortable situation, I did I did what I always did in any situation where I was nervous or uncomfortable, and I took out my camera. Uh, and in that case, it was on my phone, and I started interviewing students. So what's your message? Um, I really don't think there's anything new to say, but there shouldn't have to be, because if you looked around this closet and saw everyone just hiding together, you would know that this shouldn't be happening anymore and that it doesn't deserve to happen to anyone and that no amount of money should make it more easily accessible to get guns. I basically asked them what what do they think about kind of like gun laws in the United States. Um, I asked them about what they thought about like why this keeps happening. Even one of the students that I uh, talked to was like, yeah, like I was planning on going to a shooting range for my birthday. I personally have rallied for... Um, 
you know, gun rights and how I'm less control, not necessarily less control, but this experience has definitely changed my viewpoint. Um, I did have plans for my 18th birthday to go to Nexus Gun Range and learn how to shoot. But at this point, I don't even want to be behind a gun. I don't want to be the person behind a bullet because I don't want to be the person to point a bullet at someone. And to have the bullet pointed at me, my school, my classmates, my teachers, my mentors, it's, it's just, it's definitely eye-opening to the fact that we need more gun control in our country. And I figured I would interview students in the case that we did die so that if we did, they couldn't say what they always say in their talking points, which is like, oh, you can't talk about this because you're politicizing tragedy. I wanted those very people to know that, like, had we died in that classroom, that, that, that is, in fact, the exact opposite of what we wanted. And, in fact, what we wanted was to simply not have to die in our classrooms or live in constant fear of gun violence. Luckily, I made it out that day, but um, 34 of my classmates were shot and 17 of them were killed. Hearing my sister cry uh, and being so overwhelmed by that and the fact that she had lost four friends that day at the age of 14 made me so uncomfortable because the, for, truly for the first time in my life as her big brother, there was nothing that I could do to protect her or stop her from crying. After being at school earlier that day, I went back. I felt a necessity as somebody that knew how the news cycle worked in the first place to go out there, initially not as an activist, but as a journalist, to tell the story of what it was like going to school that day and not be a talking head on CNN or any of these other major news networks, but to tell the true human story. I went and when I was there, I saw some of the cameras and I was like, hey, I was at school. Like, do you guys want an interview? And now on to an eyewitness, a student who is at Stoneman Douglas as this horrific event unfolded. David Hogg is uh, joining us now from Broward County. Uh, David, first of all, I knew uh, that if, you know, if somebody uh, didn't get out there and immediately tell the story of what happened that day, that wasn't a talking head, that this had basically zero chance of being anything more than a two week story on the news. Our our, our well, emotions um, can I say are with one more you. thing to the audience. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I don't want this to be another mass shooting. I don't want this just to be something that people forget. This is something that people need to look at and realize that there is a serious issue in this country that we all need to face. It's an issue that affects each and every one of us. And if you think it doesn't, believe me, it will, especially if we don't take action to step up and stop things like that. For example, right. going to your congressman and asking them for help and doing things like that. That's, that's kind of what happened that day. That all happened two years ago, and a lot has happened since then. In this final episode of our season on gun violence in America, we'll hear from David and another Parkland student about how they took control of their own story and started a movement. We'll hear about some of the mistakes they made. It should have been easier to have just turned to the Black kids that they saw sitting next to them in class and saying, you know, what do you think about this issue? How can you bring your opinion and your unique experience to the table? And how they're tackling more than just school shootings. I think people really need to realize that it's not going to be solely gun laws that fixes this issue. It's, it's going to have to come down to cultural change. Yeah, this is about a cultural shift. We want to change the way that we think about guns in this country. Today on American Diagnosis, the March for Our Lives, and where do we go from here? 
I think it's safe to say that David was right when he said he didn't want this to be just another mass shooting. There were demonstrations, town hall meetings on cable news. Senator Rubio, can you tell me right now that you will not accept a single donation from the NRA in the future? A nationwide student walkout. and a rally attended by hundreds of thousands of people on the National Mall. I represent the African-American women who are victims of gun violence. For far too long, these names, these black girls and women, have been just numbers. I'm here to say, never again for those girls, too. Survivors of the Parkland shooting were able to do something that others couldn't. They took control of the narrative. I think the survivors of gun violence talking about it makes it to an extent more real, especially when young people are talking about it. It's a lot easier to just dehumanize these things when people go on TV and talk about it when they're not personally affected by it. I think when we don't understand the stories and the gravity behind these, each one of those numbers, it's a lot easier for people to just debate these issues and not actually do the, the important thing, which is to do something. The activism that came out of Stoneman Douglas High School energized people around the country to start taking action on gun violence. But in those chaotic weeks and months after the shooting, there were some voices that got lost. My name is Tia Amoy Roberts, but you could just call me Tia Roberts. I usually just go by that. I'm a student member of the National Board of March Relapse. Like David, Tia is also a survivor of the Parkland shooting. At the time of the shooting, she was taking a class at a community college, public speaking. Yeah, I always think it's kind of funny that I was taking a public speaking course, given what I would have to go on to do. I'm really glad that I took that class. Tia's parents are from Jamaica and the Bahamas. They came to the U.S. for college and stayed, in no small part because the U.S. was supposed to be a safe place for their family. Tia says she grew up relatively sheltered. Her mom wanted her to focus on her studies. It's actually how I ended up going to school in Parkland. She was trying to not have me experience things like what I, you know, inevitably experienced. It did hurt her to see that, you know, like no matter how hard you try, um, your, your child can still be faced with this awful reality of having to lose friends and having to... Uh, run and hide and be on lockdown and have these active shooter drills and things like that. With all the media attention, campaigns, marches, it's easy to forget the trauma that the Parkland students and other survivors of gun violence still deal with every day. For Tia, advocating for gun violence prevention has been a way for her to cope. I would say that in the very beginning, it was like the only way I knew how to cope. So I was just like, maybe if I work constantly, then I won't think about it. And that kind of helped for a little while. But um, us being able to help each other and us being able to talk to each other candidly has been so helpful for me and I hope helpful for them as well. And just starting the healing process. And that process allows me to put more of myself into my activism. So I'm really grateful for the connections that I've made while doing this work uh, because it's helped me cope. But in the beginning, Tia didn't feel like she had a place in the March for Our Lives. While the cameras were on students like David and Emma Gonzalez, Tia felt like there were a lot of voices being ignored. 
David and I are good friends. We've known each other since uh, before everything happened. So I felt that as someone who I knew, it should have been easier for him as well as the rest of the co-founders to have just turned to the Black kids that they saw sitting next to them in class and saying, you know, what do you think about this issue? How can you bring your opinion and your unique experience to the table? As Black students at Stoneman Douglas, we felt as if we were sitting kind of in the middle of a crossroads as people who had experienced both a mass shooting and knowing the plight of the Black community intimately uh, when it comes to gun violence. And we felt that it was doing us a disservice for them to have gone so far out to Black communities like outside of Florida or even just outside of the city before just turning to us. And so I had a conversation with David and Em about that. They were very receptive and that's kind of how I got involved in March for Our Lives was them being so open and receptive to uh, that feedback and saying, okay, well, you have that unique perspective, so let's let's get on board. Let's talk about how we can make this organization more inclusive. So why do you think, I mean, it almost sounds like you were almost invisible to them. Why do you think that was? Why do you, why do you think they didn't think to include you at first? I think part of it is just the way that the media frames things. Of course, the cameras were sitting in David and Emma and the rest of the co-founders' faces, and things were happening so quickly. Um, I don't necessarily think it's their fault specifically that that in all of the confusion and how quickly it was going, we kind of were just left in the background when it came to Black students at Stoneman Douglas. After Tia got more involved with the March for Our Lives, she saw that other students around the country had a sense that the group wasn't for them. A lot of people of color were hesitant to talk to March for Our Lives because they were afraid that March for Our Lives kind of had this uh, white savior complex. Yes, that's something that I think we certainly have to address. David Hogg. What we have to do is constantly be working to see how we can improve in listening. When we recognize the work that Black and Brown, mainly women, have been doing uh, for literally centuries around gun violence prevention in communities, uh, in their own communities, and have not gotten credit for it in the first place and acknowledge that, what we should be doing is asking, hey, like, we don't know how you're affected or your community is affected by gun violence, but asking, like, what can we do to build and grow together? And how can I help you? So the March for Our Lives has been working to cultivate diversity into its leadership and organizing. And it's helping identify blind spots. Here's Tia again. I could even say this about myself, uh, especially because I've been so uh, kind of sheltered from the realities of gun violence in this country. There are some things that I just simply do not think about because I haven't had to experience them or think about what it would be like if I had to experience them. We also just recently started our uh, March for Our Lives Student Congress, which is comprised of students from around the country who have been doing this gun violence prevention work for as long as us or much longer. And we're hoping that with that student Congress, we can start to push forward ideas generated for um, the most affected communities by the most affected communities. And we're trying to work on uh, making sure that all of this change at the national 
uh, sphere trickles down to all of our chapters and making sure that our chapters feel diverse so that our grassroots organizers can feel like they're, they have a strong space um, to be able to advocate for themselves and for the people who they represent. Tia, David, and other members of the March for Our Lives use that input to come up with something called the Peace Plan. We basically reached out to a bunch of gun violence prevention researchers and said, regardless of political climate, what could we do today to most dramatically reduce gun violence? Right. So we emphasize that this plan was written by young people for young people. Um, Of course, a a lot of professionals and policy experts um, and many adults that have helped us along the way um, with the March of Our Lives in general had a hand in the peace plan. But we wanted to emphasize that the future of this country lies with the young people and we should have a say in what kind of country that we want to see. The peace plan includes many of the solutions we've talked about this season. Universal background checks and permits to purchase a firearm, violence intervention programs, safe storage, suicide prevention, extreme risk protection orders, requirements to report lost or stolen guns, funding for gun violence research, and more. But it also calls for things we haven't talked about. It really comes down to this acronym that we created called CHANGE, where it's like C, change the standards of gun ownership to create gun licensing and and registration have the gun death rate in 10 years. If we can really create a national emergency around gun violence and set an audacious goal, we can do it and save 200,000 lives. A, accountability for the gun lobby and industry. The fact that the gun lobby is one of the few industries in the United States that is pretty much impossible to sue except very specific instances is absurd. And name a, a director of gun violence prevention. So what we see this as is kind of like a direct line to the president to talk to them about like what are the major roadblocks in the federal government's bureaucracy and how how can we streamline them and change them. G, generate community-based solutions to fully fund violence intervention programs. And then lastly, empower the next generation through automatic youth vote registration for every 18-year-old in the United States. The March for Our Lives released their peace plan in August 2019, right as the Democratic presidential primary was heating up. Part of its purpose is to hopefully pressure presidential candidates. We want them to create a comprehensive plan to address gun violence should they not support the peace plan themselves. Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke endorsed the peace plan. He made headlines with a call for a national buyback of the rifle used in the Parkland shooting, an AR-15. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against But a few months later, Beto suspended his campaign. Sadly, since seeing him drop out, there's a major opportunity for some of the Democratic candidates to pick up that torch of gun violence prevention again and talk about it significantly more. Basically, we need the presidential candidates, and I would hope in the Democratic field at least, and even if Donald Trump wanted to come up with his own gun violence prevention plan, I would hope that they do that. And realize that 40,000 Americans dying annually should not be seen as a political issue. It should be seen as a threat to the future of our country, because it is. As of this recording, no other candidates for president have endorsed the peace plan. Why don't you think that, other than Beto, you know, that none of the other candidates have really been very outspoken on this issue? To be honest with you, the, the reason why other candidates have not endorsed the peace plan is because They love using the Parkland kids as tokens. For example, over the summer, the March for Our Lives held a voter registration event in Iowa. It was called the Dance for Our Lives. Several Democratic candidates sent video messages of support, but none showed up in person. 
I, I can tell you, it really bothers me when I hear presidential candidates or really any candidate for anything say like, you know, I support those Parkland kids, but not support the peace plan. They're basically tokenizing us as young people. If you're not willing to be bold when 40,000 Americans are dying annually, can you really call yourself a leader? That's my question. Voter registration and outreach is a big part of the March for Our Lives peace plan. I do think that we can cut gun violence in half in the next 10 years, though. I, I truly do. But we need a massive voter turnout, not just this year, but every year. And to do that, we have to create a lot of organizing behind the scenes. And we need people to support March for Our Lives and other gun violence prevention organizations that are within your own local community that have been doing the work for decades on the ground and can do a lot more if they were just given a little bit more resources in the first place. So, yeah, definitely support March for Our Lives. Come to our protests when we have them. And uh, if you want to know more information or be in the loop around what we're doing, uh, you can go to marchforourlives.com. I asked Tia at the end of our conversation if she had anything else she wanted to say. Yes, this is kind of a message to our voters. And even if you're not old enough to vote yet, this is a message for you as well. This peace plan was made so that you can have something to give to your legislators. When they ask, you know, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? I want them to advocate for a safer America. And the way that they can do that is by endorsing the peace plan for a safer America. And I think it is so important for you to call your legislators, write to your legislators, Go to their doorsteps, plan meetings with them. Do not stop until they either endorse the peace plan or come up with a comprehensive gun violence prevention plan of their own. Don't ever think you are too young to go out and knock on doors and let people know that this is one of the most important elections that we're ever going to have, not only because of the presidency, but because there's so much potential for us to change the dynamic of our Congress changed the culture around young people not being engaged. There's so much potential here, and I just want us to all tap into that and remember that going forward. So here we are, the final episode in our season on gun violence. I didn't start off planning to do over 30 episodes on this topic. I was just overwhelmed by how much there was to say about it. But after dozens of interviews with experts, activists, and survivors of gun violence, there's one idea that I kept coming back to. It was a moment in my conversation with David Yamani. He's a professor at Wake Forest. Here it is. We really have two different social worlds as concerns guns. You know, we have uh, people for whom guns will never be a problem. And we have places and people for whom their only experience of guns is as a problem. Think about the stories we heard in this episode from the Parkland survivors. I don't think there's a Second Amendment argument that'll change the way Tia and David feel about guns. But the mass shooting they experienced, the thing that moved them to start a national movement, didn't move someone like Kevin Creighton a gun rights supporter I spoke with earlier this season. I understand the passion. I understand the fear. Of course I do. I have a 12-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old. My wife's a teacher. I'd be a moron not to understand the fear of school shootings. It's a, it's, it, you know, 
it's a very valid and honest fear to have. But to sit there and say that the NRA's problem, the world's largest firearm safety training organization, is the reason why people are using guns unsafely, that'd be like saying Mothers Against Drunk Driving going out and boycotting AAA. Kevin isn't pro-gun violence. He doesn't think students should be dealing with school shootings. But for people like Kevin, guns and the NRA aren't the problem. Here's David Yamani again. I think that one of the challenges we have as a society in talking about guns is that people just experience guns in different ways. So most of the people I know experience guns as law-abiding gun owners who use guns for legal purposes, to have fun, to connect with their family, to connect with their friends. Uh, And so they really have a difficult time understanding the reality of guns in another community in which the only experience people have with guns is negative, right? That they're used in crime, they're used to terrorize people. You know, people are direct or indirect victims of gun violence. And because those two social worlds can be so far apart, then we have a tremendously difficult time understanding one another when we when we try to talk about, you know, this is the reality of guns. This is the startling thing about guns in America. We can't even agree if there's a problem in the first place. Some people think gun violence is a national emergency. Others think guns are essential to our freedom. And neither camp has much respect for the other. Well, I think it definitely pushes the one side away. I mean, I think there's polarization in both ways because there is a good uh, sizable minority of people within gun culture who look down on anybody who wants to propose any uh, restrictions on firearms. And so I think that's emblematic of our political system overall right now is that it's really being driven by people on the polls on either side when in reality, most of the people are somewhere in the middle. So how do we bridge those two worlds, in, in your opinion? Well, I, I might be up for some kind of humanitarian awards if I could figure out how exactly to do that. But I know in my own personal life, I try to take opportunities to speak with people with whom I may not agree about guns. I think that if there were ways we could think about doing the kinds of things I try to do as an individual on a more systematic basis, now that might have some potential for increasing people's understanding, and it wouldn't necessarily immediately translate into action, but I think that the understanding could create a basis for action uh, at a later time. If there were more of an effort towards empathy uh, in both directions, I think that we would make more progress and you know the less we can do to try to stigmatize one another either for our pro-gun or anti-gun views you know I think the, the better off we'll be as a society because guns are a reality you know over there are more guns than people in America so we're not going to be getting rid of guns anytime soon we need to figure out ways of living with guns and living with each other uh, in a better way than we have at least in recent years. You may have noticed that I haven't used the term gun control once over this 36-episode season. 
I think that kind of terminology is a big part of our communication disconnect. Gun violence prevention and gun safety are goals we strive for, and they aren't synonymous with gun control. Gun control is one approach to preventing gun violence. Over the course of this season, we've talked about the science behind a whole range of solutions to gun violence. Some of these solutions involve regulating guns and access to guns, and some don't. Some are better suited to the national or local levels, and some to certain regions, or populations, or types of gun violence. When we formulate all solutions to the gun violence problem as gun control, an error committed by both sides of the debate, we make it hard to find common ground. We make it hard for everyone to agree that gun violence is a problem, because we're forcing them to buy in to one narrow set of solutions. For example, why do some people refuse to believe in climate change? There are many reasons for this. But one reason is that in the minds of many, believing in climate change means cutting jobs. But what if we offered a wider menu of solutions and detailed the science behind them? Or take, for instance, entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare. Those of us working in healthcare and the insurance industry, among other sectors, are well aware of the impending silver tsunami, demographic shifts resulting in many more older people relative to the number of young working people in this country. That's going to have huge implications for the solvency of entitlement programs. If I acknowledge this is a problem, does it mean I think we need to eliminate Social Security and Medicare? Of course not. There's more than one solution to the problem. But we can't come up with solutions if we can't even agree there's a problem. And that's where our work must begin. In our next season, you'll get a special treat. As some of you know, I wear a lot of hats, one of which is working with Ted Med, the medical branch of the TED Talks. I'll be at TED Med in Boston in March, and I'll be interviewing a few of this year's speakers. We'll bring you those stories and more in a special season on health equity coming out later this spring. American Diagnosis is brought to you by Just Human Productions. Today's episode was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. As we grow this podcast, we don't just want to grow our listenership. We want to grow this community. And that means you. Let us know how you'd like us to better engage with you on the issues. Tweet us at AmericanDXFM or send us a message through our website, AmericanDiagnosis.FM. That's AmericanDiagnosis.FM. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast, how to engage with us on social media, and how to support the podcast at AmericanDiagnosis.fm. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so donations are tax deductible. Again, that's AmericanDiagnosis.fm. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is American Diagnosis.